Welcome to another edition of the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. Alongside Chris Dorch of Blue Ribbon, I'm Kevin Ingram. We have the Final Four on the way on Saturday. Villanova, Kansas, Duke against North Carolina. Those are the national semifinals. So, uh, Chris, welcome as always, and uh, looking forward to a big weekend of basketball just ahead. Me too. I'll tell you, my bracket was a wasteland, but I don't care. Uh, as long as it, as the tournament wound down to give us the Final Four like this one. Uh, you know, it, it was a it was a year where I don't care what anybody says. Nobody picked St. Peter's to, no. to beat Kentucky, Murray State, and Purdue. Nobody did, unless they were just filled out, you know, a hundred brackets and, and and tried to pick every eventuality. But <laughs> I mean, it was it was one of the wilder tournaments. Yesterday, I was showing my class uh, the results of our bracket contest so far. And I, I left it on the screen for about a millisecond, just kind of jokingly, uh, so they wouldn't see that I was in 13th place. <laughs> out of, how, out of how many? <laughs> there were 16. No. Uh, it, it got a good laugh, but I, I, I clicked the PowerPoint back there, and, you know, I owned up. I, sometimes the more you know, uh, and this was one of those deals where, uh, years where, I said, wow, I'm really going to try to dig deep here. I'm going to use analytics. I'm going to use what I know. I'm going to talk to coaches. Didn't do me a dang bit of good. Uh, <laughs> I should have just – I should have gone with the percentages. Go with your gut. Uh, you know, there's a there's a, a girl in my class that – she's a climber and a kayaker. She She's really gotten into basketball, though. But she's uh, she picked North Carolina to win it all, and – uh, she's right up there with a chance to win it. Uh, I, I give them a gift card for 25 bucks <laughs> just to make it a, somewhat interesting. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, she just went with the, with the seeds, you know, and, and uh, I, I don't know how she got uh, North Carolina though. They were an eight seed, but I guess she just liked Carolina blue. You know, I and, and all the years, and I, and I haven't played one of those things in quite a while. And, I, and these days, with my job, I'm not really allowed to play in that sort of thing. But the, the only time I can ever remember winning one was 30 years ago this year in, in 1992. And I worked at a radio station in Glasgow, Kentucky, and, and I hadn't been there very long. I'd only been there a few weeks, and they're like, "Hey, Kevin, you want to play in a bracket game we're playing?" I'm like, "Sure." And so, you know, they, they figured, you know, this. 19 20 year old kid yeah it'll be an e- you know easy money yeah, for, for, every, for no, everybody yeah. else and so the way that i won was i actually picked duke to be kentucky in that regional final and i think everybody else there picked kentucky to win and and i won the whole wow. deal <laughs> wow wow and what and, and it took the one of the most awesome plays in the history yep. of the tournament to do it <laughs> right exactly i've won in my class the last couple of years we had it but I always, you know, I can't accept the prize. Right, so right. I, the second place person always gets it. But I, I had one of my, one of my students. She said, "All I want to do is beat you," <laughs> <laughs> and she did. <laughs> yeah, those things are always fun, and uh, there are different forms of them. I, I've played them in various sorts of games like that over the years, but uh, again, not not in quite a while. Um, as far as the final four coming up. Uh, the, the first matchup will be Villanova against Kansas, and that'll be shortly after five o'clock Central, six Eastern time on Saturday. Kansas is the only top seed remaining. Did that surprise you a little bit that that none of the other number ones made it? You know, it really did. But I thought, you know, Baylor, I think was was an overrated number one. Yeah, not because of anything they did. It was because of injuries, key injuries. Uh, 
and I just didn't think that they were uh, a number one seed, but, you know, the committee thought differently. I think seeding, I, I don't know. I don't know that they really nailed seeding this year. Uh-huh. Uh, if you look at, at the results, that bears that out, but uh, it's just so funny. You never know what motivates someone in the final four. You catch a break here and there. Sometimes a team like St. Peter's does the heavy lifting for you. Yep. By the time North Carolina got to them, they'd, they'd crushed, uh, they'd knocked two teams that a lot of people thought could win it all out of the tournament. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's just the way the tumblers click. And it's it's uncanny how that's gone for Duke. It's funny, one of my students, the one actually who picked North Carolina, she said, have you heard the rumors that that, that the tournament was rigged for Duke? And I, I said, that's stupid. But I said, you know what? They did get a number two seed. And if you looked at them versus, say, Tennessee, which got a number three, their metrics didn't stack up at all. So uh, that certainly helped them, but – you know, a lot of upsets help them too. And let's not overlook the fact that Coach K is, is, is the greatest of all time and that a couple of his players really pick now to really step up. I think Paolo Banchero obviously was one of the best freshmen in the country, but he has really elevated his game. He's an obvious lottery pick, but uh, they've just come together at the right time. Uh, what did last weekend show us about the the parody in the college game, especially as you mentioned, St. Peter's winning another game and becoming the first 15 to get to the Elite Eight? That never had happened before. And, you know, you're talking about the seating and so forth, and, and I agree. I, I thought there were some mistakes as far as that goes. But I also think that, and we, we've talked about this on this show, that once you get past that first round, all, all the games are difficult after that. But what, what do you feel like that St. Peter's really proved in this tournament? You know, I think they've proved what you and I have known for years. Obviously, you were uh, at the microphone for, what, 17 years at Belmont. Uh, I went to college at two mid-majors, George Mason and East Tennessee State. So I've always been partial to mid-majors. I even hate to use the term and kept a close eye. And I think what this proves is that if you give a mid-major a fighting chance – you're going to see this. It would happen way more often in the regular season if, say, a Belmont could get a team like, I don't know, a Kansas to come to their place, but that'll never happen. Right? Uh, they won't even play them on a neutral site unless it's in an eight-game tournament and it just happens to fall that way. So I think all things being equal, uh, parity exists more than, than the, the average fan might imagine. And I think what really – started it was the three-point goal uh i didn't like it at first when it when it first came out i thought it was kind of a circus shot that they borrowed from the old aba i didn't think the game needed it but it took me just one season uh they experimented with it in the the southern conference which i covered at the time as a young sports writer and it just took that one season for me to realize this is a game changer oh there's no question uh, yeah and i think the the, uh, the teams that embraced it and, uh, you know, Les Robinson, when he was at East Tennessee State, did it, and they went to four straight uh, NCAA tournaments. Uh, uh, but I think the teams that embraced it quickly realized, hey, uh, this gives us parity because not every team can can sign big post players, but every team can get guys that can shoot it. And, I mean, I think careers were built off that. 
there's no question that Belmont's Rick Bird, one of the best coaches in, in history, realized early on that if I can get guys who can shoot the basketball and that can reenact what I tell them in the huddle, uh, I've got a chance. Mm-hmm. And they really did. And another Rick was a big proponent early of the three-pointer, and that was Rick Pitino. I mean, you think about when he was at Providence, that was the first year that it was in existence, and they went to the Final Four, and that became a whole lot of what he did, you know, especially in those early years that he was at Kentucky. So, yeah, you had some people who were very resistant to the three-pointer, and maybe they got passed by for a while at least, and then some were early proponents and understood what it could mean for college basketball. So it's interesting to go back, I mean, and think about how long that's been. I mean, you're talking about 35 years ago uh, when the three-pointer became standard in college basketball. Then at 19-9, it's been moved back twice since since then. But it's hard to imagine. It's even hard to go back and watch games without the three-pointer. It's, it's so crazy now to, to see those games. Chris, uh, so much else going on in in college hoops including the transfer portal how crazy is this whole scene where it seems like every day you're seeing more and more names just just pour in there and you wonder are are there going to be spots for these place these players who think maybe hey i might have a chance to it to move up a notch here and you know to play at a higher level uh you know what's the the future going to hold for some of these guys who are are entering the portal well that's a good question man last year uh, there were more transfers and there were spots and you saw uh, verbalcommits.com, by the way, is a great website that I check many times a day. They're not paying me to say this. I, it's just one of the best sites for what I do. Uh, and it was amazing how many people ended up transferring to uh, levels less than D1. I mean, some schools that yeah. I didn't even know had programs. <laughs> you know, it was like a bunch of technical schools and stuff. And, and But uh, – yeah, I, I think everybody's always looking for that uh, patch of greener grass, and it isn't necessarily there. And then, of course, coaching changes. I don't know if you've seen it, but just about all of Murray State's team is in the portal. Yeah. And, of course, Matt McMahon uh, took the job at LSU. I think he'll do a great job down there. K.J. Williams, that's a good question for you. You saw K.J. Williams a lot. Uh, he's in the portal, uh, likely bound for LSU. Can he play at the SEC level? I would think he can. I, he's not going to be as dominant of a player as he was in the OVC, but I certainly think there's probably a place for him in the uh, in, a, in a conference like the SEC. A big body, he can get to the rim, he can score, he can do all those things. Um, I, I was thinking that he was out of eligibility after this, but you know, today with you know with, with the extra year for COVID, it's it's hard to say yeah. if you're ever really truly out of out of eligibility. Uh, it's amazing how long some players are playing, and you know, you throw in maybe a redshirt year if you had an injury or a season where you transferred before you know the rules were loosened up, and you got guys who've been playing for six or seven years in college basketball. But yeah, I think KJ Williams probably can, and uh, I've seen, gosh, I've seen a, a bunch of players. I, I live here in Nashville, obviously, and lots of players from the teams around here have entered the portal and uh, I'll be interested to see uh, some of the destinations for those guys. You, you talk about coaching changes. Uh, Steve Prohm's going back to Murray State. I, I think that's a great get for Murray. I don't know that they could have done a whole lot better in trying to replace Matt McMahon than to get a guy who was there and was super successful and has already been there and done that. Uh, and Steve Prohm, he of course, went to Iowa State. Didn't really work out that great for him there. I would have thought he would have uh, won, won at a pretty high rate uh, at Iowa State, but I know they are, are happy to have him back in Murray. And then uh, in, in your neck of the woods in Chattanooga, a new coach announced uh, not, not long ago, actually. Yeah, Dan Earl from VMI. I think some people looked at the fact that he was from VMI and they looked at his record and thought, you know, what what the heck? But he's a good coach. Uh, you know, he's he's 
he's, he's been 500 uh, the last two years at VMI. What I think is impressive about him is he's been able to take some players and coach them up. He has a 6'11 kid named Jake Stevens, who his stats are off the charts, about 20 points, nine boards, almost 50% from three. Uh, he just happened to have graduated from VMI, and they don't have a graduate school. So huh. I wouldn't be surprised if he wound up at Chattanooga. Another kid uh, I noticed in the portal, a kid named Bubba Parham, he played for Dan Earl. Uh, three years ago, he averaged 21 points at VMI and decided to get in the portal. He headed to Georgia Tech, and Dan told him, that's not going to work out for you. Uh, and, and sure enough, uh, he's back in the portal, and I wouldn't be surprised if we see him in Chattanooga. So, yeah, uh, yeah Dan will get the job done. I, I've talked to several coaches about him, and one assistant from an ACC school that knows him well told me, He's not a good coach. He's a great coach. So uh, that was one of the better hires. Uh, you know, there are some who might say that, you know, even though they Chattanooga lost Lamont Paris, that they got an upgrade with Dan Earl. And a guy I know that you've been friends with a long time, and I've gotten to know this season, Ed Conroy, uh, was assistant at Vanderbilt this year. Now he's headed back to his alma mater at Citadel. So uh, congratulations to him. And I know he's, yeah. he's been there before. So, uh, uh, and, and, and having conversations with you and with him, I know he really likes that conference. So uh, uh, all the best to Ed. Really wish him well. He, he did, a, did a really good job in the season that he was at Vanderbilt and uh, looking forward to what's ahead for him. He's one of the best in the business, one of my better friends in the business. And, uh, yeah, he just loves the SOCON. Last year he tried to get involved with the Western Carolina job, and he just slayed the interview uh, off the top of his head. I mean, he knows SOCON history like you wouldn't believe, but – they had another candidate in mind before he got involved, so he didn't get it. But I thought that uh, he, he was one and done at Vanderbilt because a job in the SOCON would open up and he'd probably get it. And Yeah, he was the last coach to win 20 games at the Citadel. He played for Les Robinson at the Citadel uh, that won 20 games uh, there. So he knows how to get it done. And the thing about the Citadel that people don't understand, they can take grad transfers. And as the former coach there, uh, Doug or Balcom once told me, they don't have to carry a rifle. So that means <laughs> no military obligations. They get to live off campus in beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, and they don't have to fool with any of that nonsense, uh, like the knob, the knobs and the rat line and all that crap. Oh man. Uh, they can just come and play ball and go to school. So, uh, you know, I'm sure Ed with his contacts will take advantage of the portal. They need you to do the recruiting pitch for the grad transfers. Uh, you, you got the lingo yeah. down there, buddy. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you, I love Charleston, man. I, oh, that's a beautiful I, place. I, this this is off topic a little bit, but I, I had my personal best key lime pie there. Really? Uh, yeah, we, we ate at this little seafood place. I, I can't remember the name of it, but while we were there, a, a little tugboat pulled up to their dock. They were literally on the water. And we asked the waiter, I said, what's that? And he said, oh, that's today's catch. <laughs> so, <laughs> that place was awesome. Oh, yeah. We, uh, we, but, we've uh, been there a time yeah. or two ourselves. That, that's a fantastic place to visit. There's no question. I used to love going there when I covered the Southern Conference. I, I covered the league twice, once as a beat writer for East Tennessee State and, and another for Chattanooga. And it was always cool to go there. I love the Southern Conference. It's mm. how I got my, my start and how I really learned how to – cover the game and, and understand it uh, like a coach might understand it instead of maybe just a fan or 
or a writer. And, and I, it helped me transcend from being a generalist uh, to, to somebody that specifically focuses on college basketball. And I'm really appreciative of, of the role it played. Chris, back to the Final Four. Did it feel to you like it was almost a destiny that Duke and North Carolina were going to play in this Final Four, especially with Coach K being in his last year? Now, they, they had some close calls along the way uh, to get to this point. North Carolina, as you talked about earlier, uh, they might have caught a break with St. Peter's getting that far, and so uh, they were able to, to win pretty handily, 69-49. Duke beat Arkansas 78-69 in their regional final, but uh, it's hard for me to believe that this is the first time they've ever played in an NCAA tournament setting, uh, yeah. much much less in a Final Four. I was thinking at some point, like maybe late 80s, early 90s, they had met. Surely. But, but then, you know, I, it, it reminded me that in 91, Kansas beat North Carolina in one semifinal, and then Duke pulled the, the big upset of UNLV. Maybe it wasn't the biggest upset, but it was pretty big at the time because UNLV yeah. was undefeated, and that was one of the great teams ever. But they would have met in the championship game that, that year if uh, – Kansas and Duke hadn't, well, I, I guess if Kansas really hadn't spoiled the party, but uh, you know, they will face it in the tournament for the first time, and that, that'll be really an interesting matchup. And got to give Hubert Davis credit. You're talking about some of Duke's players playing their best at the right time. That's certainly the case for North Carolina, and they're playing their best basketball of the season. There's no question. I mean, I, I was telling my class yesterday, if, if a Hollywood script writer wrote this and turned it in, he'd get laughed out of the out of the <laughs> studio. Uh, the, there's no way you could, you could have scripted it, especially in Coach K's, you know, final, uh, the waning moments of his career. But, yeah, Hubert Davis has done a great job, and, and his players have really stepped up. Uh, I, I think uh, if you look at their starting lineup, and you, you see a lot of their starting lineup, they call them the Iron Five. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they don't come out much. And R.J. Davis and Caleb Love are one of the best guard combos in, in the country. And Brady Manick has been – one of the better portal acquisitions in the country. Of course, he had played four years at Oklahoma, and he's come and he's had some big games in this tournament, 28 and 26 points. Uh, he's been an outside threat, can score inside. And Armando Baycott has been awesome. Uh, in, in the Elite Eight, he had 20 and 22 boards. Yeah. So it's going to be a real matchup. I'm eager to hear what our, our guest has to say about it. Well, Chris, our first guest is a guy who, I mean, you call him Mr. ACC, and there's no question about it. He is a Blue Ribbon contributor and, and just a terrific sports writer, Brett Friedlander. What's going on? Not much. Uh, I mean, it's just I, I hear there's a little basketball game that's going to be played on Saturday. <laughs> I mean, everybody here in North Carolina seems to be talking about it. I'm not, I'm not sure what you know what, what that's all about, but I'm doing good. <laughs> now, now, we were talking about 1991 when, when Kansas beat North Carolina, and, of course, Duke pulled the, the upset of undefeated UNLV. So Kansas really spoiled the party as far as a Duke-North Carolina matchup, which would have been in the championship game that year in Indy. But you were telling us you have some cool memories of what all went on on that Final Four Saturday. It's funny because the thing I remember most is that um, at the end of that game, Dean Smith got his second technical foul and was ejected from the game. It was very late in the game, and he was magnanimous about it, went and shook hands with Roy and, and the whole thing. Well, after the game, uh, his assistant coach, Bill Guthridge, who at the time was known as the Rottweiler because he was <laughs> Dean's attack dog, waited for uh, referee Pete Pavia in the tunnel just off the court and just laid into him. And, and, and there was a nice shouting match, and it was – quite entertaining so that's that's what i remember about that <laughs> I, I would have not have thought of, of bill guthridge of being that personality you know i know he was grandpa bill when yeah. he was the head coach yeah. he was like 
right? But this was in his younger days when he was still, yeah. you know, <laughs> the Rottweiler. Feeling the Rottweiler. <laughs> uh, Brett, last time we had you on, we were talking about how people thought the ACC was down. Uh, <laughs> uh, duh. You, you, should, you should reserve judgment until the season is over, yeah. I think. <laughs> yeah, that's usually a good idea. And that's the thing, too. Listen, the ACC was down. I mean, it, there's yeah. no question about it. But it wasn't apocalyptically down the way people were making it out. <laughs> good way to put it. And, and here's, here's the reason why. There were a lot of games in November and December, non-conference games, that were very ugly. Uh, I, I, I think the Citadel beat somebody. Um, uh, Wofford may have beat somebody. Th- there were some really ugly, I mean, right state, which, by the way, made the tournament. Um, yep. but, but here's the thing. Look at the teams. Wake Forest, three, four, I think they may have even had five grad, uh, transfers. UNC, brand new coach, transfers, right? Brady Manick trying to figure out how to, you know, incorporate Duke, a lot of freshmen. Teams get better as the season goes along, especially when you have really good coaches. And so I think that, yeah, it was, it was bad and the start was terrible, but – First of all, they came within one win, uh, uh, within a Duke collapse in the fourth in, in, in the last ten minutes against Ohio State of tying the ACC uh, Big Ten challenge, and you know they got better as the season went along. And as it turns out, you know, I think that judging a conference by its postseason results is almost as silly as judging a conference by its non-conference results in the first two months of the season. But I think what it does show is that teams evolved and the ACC is a better league than people were giving it credit. Now, here's the million-dollar question, buddy. How do you see Duke Carolina? And we're still amazed that this is the first time they've yeah. ever teed it up in this thing. It's crazy. They came close a few times. Uh, you know, they, they were on collision course and somebody got upset and – and, you know, the funny thing is, is that as much as the folks here in North Carolina are talking about this, this is a game that a lot of people really dreaded because, I mean, this is, you know, this is Armageddon here. I mean, yeah. it's, <laughs> it really is. It's crazy that, you know, that, that, that it, and what this does is too, a lot was made of Coach K's last game at Cameron and the UNC fans in particular took great pleasure in the fact that they ruined it for him. Well, now Kay's got a chance at redemption because that game is absolutely irrelevant now if Duke wins this one Saturday and goes on to win the national championship. And so there, there are so many really weird, interesting angles to this. But I, I think the big thing is um, how Duke now adjusts because Hubert Davis and UNC was a different team a month later after that first blowout loss at the Dean Dome. And one of the reasons is, is because they made some adjustments. The biggest adjustment was that in that first game, Hubert put Armando Baycott defensively on Paolo Bencaro, and he immediately got two fouls. Now, he ended up only getting one more foul the rest of the game, and he played, I want to say, 30 minutes. But he wasn't the same. He wasn't as aggressive. He was not a, he was not a factor. Well, in the second game, he put Leakey on on um, Bancaro. Now, Bancaro scored, I want to say, 27 points or 23 points. It was a leading scorer. But it gave Armando Baycott, Baycott the opportunity to be Armando Baycott, and Duke really had no answer for that. Now, 
so we'll see what kind of adjustments that um, Coach K makes. One of them, I believe he's already made. The, the move to replace Jeremy Roach into the starting lineup in place of Trevor Keels, I think has been really a, an, an incredible uh, part of this run now that, that they've figured it out. And, and, you know, they've got a true point guard out there and he's getting the ball to guy, to, to, you know, to, to, uh, to players where they need it a lot better than when they were just kind of running around. I, I understand that coach K likes to play positionless basketball, but to me, even with that, you need a true distributor and Jeremy and uh, Jeremy Roach has done that and added some scoring. Um, it's, it's going to be really interesting. And, and I think that uh, to me, the key to this is going to be Caleb Love. If, if Caleb Love makes shots and doesn't turn the ball over, Carolina's got a great shot at this. If he reverts back to the mean and, and, and you know, and, and he's been on a great run, but he's been known to have a stinker. And if he has a stinker, Carolina's in trouble. And one other thing, the game at Cameron, the pressure that was on those kids was just immense. Because you had that buildup. You had that entire year buildup. You had all the players that came back. And I think losing that game may actually have helped Duke. Because I think those kids learned that you can't be that focused on something other than the game itself. And and I think that they have learned now to – because now every game could be Krzyzewski's last. And you see how they, they reacted at the end of the Michigan State game, at the end of the Texas Tech game. And I think that that the experience that they had in that game at Cameron has helped them now handle late game situations. Our guest is Brett Friedlander. Uh, one more for me before we let you go. I want to ask you about Hubert Davis, North Carolina. I mean, you, you talked about their team getting a whole lot better as this season's gone along. Roy Williams has been very visible throughout the season at the games. But instead of being, you know, something that's sort of like hanging over the program with having the former coach in the stands, do you think it's almost been a comfort to have Roy around like like he's been? I absolutely think it has because it's a totally opposite dynamic to when Dean retired because, you know, even though he kept a an office at the Smith Center, uh, I don't remember him going to more than a couple of games. And that's like when they uh, honored his 82 team, he showed up and there was one other time. But Roy, I, I think because of the transition, because of the fact that Hubert was his assistant and a lot of people didn't think he was ready. This is his first head coaching job. And believe me, back in uh, December, after those losses to mm-hmm. Purdue and to Kentucky, there were a lot of people who, who thought that Wes Miller should have gotten that job and, and were very vocal on social media. But uh, Hubert has won a lot of people over. And even though Carolina is not an on-the-job training kind of job, mm-hmm. um, this year has been on-the-job training. And credit to Hubert that he has learned his lessons very quickly and has really done a good job of bringing that team together. And I think Roy's presence there and the fact that Roy endorsed him and was behind him, you know what I mean? It, it's yeah. like, while well, everybody else had turned on him. Roy was still there for him. And I, I, I think that really was a very, very big, big part of this. And, and I think it definitely helped Hubert get his feet on the ground. He's Mr. ACC, Brett Friedlander. Thank you so much for the time. Uh, really enjoy your perspective uh, on this game and really that conference in general. Hope we can catch up with you again down the road. I, I hope we live through this is all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Anytime, guys. Chris, our second distinguished guest on this week's Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast is a guy who's uh, covered Villanova for many years for the Philadelphia Inquirer. He is a Blue Ribbon contributor 
And Chris, as, as you're going to mention, a new Hall of Famer. He is Joe Giuliano. What's going on, Joe? Hey, Kevin. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Oh, great. Anytime. Yeah, Joe, I, I wanted to mention right outside the box, uh, you and, and another dear friend of ours and contributor uh, to Blue Ribbon, Mike Waters, uh, have been inducted into the U.S. Basketball Writers Hall of Fame. And uh, are you going down to pick up your award uh, in New Orleans? Yeah, I am. I'm, I'm going down Sunday. I feel terrible that Villanova's in the Final Four, and I have nothing to do with it, which uh, kind of <laughs> eats so away congratulations. a little bit. Congrats but, uh, on that I, honor, buddy. I am well-deserved. So Thank you. I am so honored to go in with Mike Waters and my other buddy, uh, Vahe Gregorian from the Cape uh, Kansas Vahe, City. yeah. I mean, I've known those guys forever. They're former presidents of the USBWA, and it, having those go, those guys go in legitimizes my poor uh, campaign. I know. <laughs> yeah, you 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 deserved it on your own right, man. You you have been Mr. Philly basketball for for a long time, and we're honored to have you as a contributor to Blue Ribbon. Thanks, Chris. I enjoy it. I really do. Well, the first uh, first thing out of the box, uh, dang. Villanova wasn't deep anyway. And then Justin Moore, that injury, it, it, it seemed, I don't know, it, it didn't seem so bad at first and, and, until it was. Uh, when I saw it on replay, I thought, oh, no. Uh, Jay just doesn't play a ton of guys, does he? No, he hasn't. Not this year. Um, obviously, they go with a six-man rotation. Caleb Daniels is the guy coming off the bench, but he's playing starters minutes. And then the other two, uh, Chris Archidiacono and uh, Jordan Longino was uh, was a, 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 a key reserve. He he hurt his knee in practice uh, the Wednesday of um, Big East tournament week, and he's out for the season. So now they're bringing in Brian Antoine, who's had you know countless injuries, too many to mention in five minutes here. Um, so he, I think Brian Antoine is the guy who's going to really have to do something uh you know he's going to have to play more than you know six to eight minutes and uh hopefully he's ready he's been playing great defense but he, his shot is way off uh, you know not like the, the people saw him in high school in jersey so that's that's what he has off the bench now is chris arch and uh, and um antoine and uh we'll see how that works uh in his uh conference call on monday jay said that uh, eric dixon who averages about 26 27 minutes a game is going to get more minutes and then he's going to have Archie Diacono and, and um, Antoine. And, and one thing I want to add, Moore missed the Connecticut game in Philadelphia with a sprained ankle. And Archie Diacono came in and played 27 minutes and played pretty well, especially defensively. So uh, he, he knows what he's doing. Arch had to fill in last year when Colin Gillespie messed up his knee. So uh, we'll see how that goes. How good has Colin Gillespie been for this team? I mean, that, that guy's just a remarkable player, isn't he? Yeah, he, he's, he's terrific. Um, you know, Jay, uh, you know, always wants to make sure kids are doing the right thing, whether it's staying or leaving. Uh, Jeremiah Robinson Earl obviously left last year after his second year. But uh, Colin, because of the knee injury he suffered at the end of last year, he was rehabbing most of the, all of the summer, not most of the summer. And that really took him out of the running for um, an NBA job. But, you know, with uh, COVID, uh, everybody got a fifth year. Gillespie came back. Jermaine Samuels came back. But Gillespie's, I mean, he knows the—he knows Villanova's system and Villanova's culture better than Jay Wright. I mean, I, I really think that. I mean, it, it's a, just amazing how well he handles every situation on and off the court. 
even the situation against St. John's in the first in the quarterfinal round of the Big East tournament playoff, where Jay reportedly said in the huddle to uh, Gillespie after St. John's got up by 17, you better get your effing team together. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Colin did. They won St. John's on the two free throws by Slater. They went ahead and beat UConn in the semis and Creighton in the final. Not not by any great margins. Everything was one or two possessions, which is why it's been so funny that they've, you know, um, gotten through the NCAA tournament without really much of a sweat, especially Delaware, Ohio State, and then the um, the Sweet 16 game, and then Houston. So, yeah, it's, it's been interesting. But Gillespie has been terrific, and uh, with more out, I mean, he's going to have to shoulder even more of the load. You know, with Coach K retiring, you you – you would have to think, well, people would consider him the best coach in the game, but I, w- I wondered who would take up that mantle. And you could make a great argument for Jay Wright, couldn't you? Oh, yeah. Since the 2015-2016 season, I mean, they've played lights out. I mean, they, they've obviously won two national championships. Sweet 16 last year without Gillespie. Gave Baylor their best, their toughest game in the whole Bears run to the championship. And now this year with, um, you know, making the final four, which I didn't expect. I, I, I thought they'd get to the eight, but not, I, I didn't think they'd beat Arizona, but Arizona wasn't even there. So, yeah, so much for that bracket. Um, but, you know, it's he, he's done a, a phenomenal job. I, I think I've told you this, Chris. I mean, the most amazing stat that I've ever seen was in the 2015-16 to 2018-9 season. Villanova won like uh, went 180 something games without back-to-back losses. To me, that wow. that's that is that's incredible. That is the wildest stat I, I've ever seen, and um, I, I that that tells you like how consistent and and well consistently excellent Villanova has played uh, over that time period. But you know uh, he came back for more this year with. Uh, you know, with, with another uh, you know, team and, and, and an older team, let's face it, fifth-year guys in Gillespie and Samuels. Uh, uh, Brandon Slater's a fourth-year guy, senior. Moore's a junior, but has played, you know, you know, many minutes, many, many minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Eric Dixon, uh, you know, a project his entire freshman year. He didn't play a minute, redshirted. Jay wanted him to, A, lose weight, and B, learn how to use and learn footwork because he's going to be an, mostly an inside player. So it's just incredible what Villanova does with development of, of the kids, and they stick around, too. I mean, he, he, I mean, Sadiq Bay went two years. Jeremiah Robinson Earl went two years. But at least they, they made that second year and, and made a tremendous leap and are now in the NBA. This week, two days ago, actually marked the 30th anniversary of the, the Duke-Kentucky thriller in 92. And, and given that it was played at the old spectrum there in Philly, how important is that game in Philadelphia sports history? You know, everybody everybody knows about it, and it's it's such a famous game. But what about for that city to to have that piece of history in their building? Oh, I think it's great. I I you know I I was there. I mean, I I, I saw it. I mean, as soon as the shot went in, I said, "What do you want me to write?" They said, "Don't write. It's it's deadline. Just get quotes and feed the the other guys." Oh, thanks. You know, so <laughs> I, got, I got the next edition. But no, it, it was a classic game. It's all anybody ever talks about. And I think, you know, there are people in Philadelphia who, you know, have a certain type of pride, especially the, the old spectrum. I mean, the, there was nothing like it. And the only and the one thing I remember about that 1992 game was that the phones were so messed up inside the, the, the spectrum. You know, guys couldn't get outside lines. 
they were cursing at poor Al Schreier, the Temple Sports <laughs> Information Director. The Temple was the, was the host institution for the uh, regional. Um, it was amazing anybody ever got a story out uh, during that game, but uh, it worked out great. And, uh, you know, we read about it every year. Um, in fact, I read Gene Wojciechowski's book again, uh, you know, before the actual anniversary date so I could talk semi-intelligently about it. But no, it, it, it was a fantastic game, a fantastic atmosphere. Uh, um, you know, you couldn't ask for better. And, I, I, you know, I defy anybody to find a better game than that. Joe, real quick, I know it's it's hard to predict, but uh, any thoughts as far as how you think this Villanova-Kansas game will go? Well, Kansas was really scary in the second half against Miami. There's they no were. question. I, you know, Kansas is going to want to push the tempo. Villanova is going to want to play their walk it up. You know, don't even think about shooting until the the shot clock reaches ten. Yeah. Um, it's amazing. I, I I really didn't expect that from a Jay Wright coach team to have a tempo in the bottom twenty of Ken Palm. You know that that's <laughs> that's that just floors me, especially with that twenty eighteen team, which was so offensively potent with Brunson yeah. and DiVincenzo and and guys like that. So uh, yeah, it's it's going to be who who imposes their will tempo wise on the other guy. And that means Villanova cannot afford to turn the ball over. You know, the live ball turnovers will be deadly. Uh, you know, the one-and-done shots will be deadly. You know, transition defense for them is going to be key. Hall of Fame basketball writer, Blue Ribbon contributor Joe Giuliano, thank you so much for the time, and again, congratulations. Hey, thanks a lot, Kevin. Thank you, and thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me. Thanks, buddy. Have a good one. Well, two terrific guests. Uh, first, Brett Friedlander, Mr. ACC, and then Joe Giuliano, who's uh, Mr. Philadelphia, Great perspective on both these games and two just outstanding basketball writers, guys who, who know their stuff and have the perspective of covering those uh, leagues and cities for a long period of time. So cool to visit with both of them. Chris, as we finish up here, I wanted to ask you about memories of covering the Final Four in New Orleans. Give me a thing or two that stands out. Well, uh, it, it's just such a great town anyway. And then uh, – to have the final four there. And that was the year, obviously Kentucky won it. But one thing that off the court that, that stands out, you know, every time you go to a final four or or a conference tournament, you sort of run into uh, your buddies and you just pair off with a certain group of them and you end up hanging out with them. And for me uh, during that week, it was Charles Bloom uh, who was then uh, uh, PR director for the SEC. He's now like a huge deal at South Carolina. Mike Stamus, a.k.a. Moose, the Georgia Tech basketball uh, AD. And Chuck Galena, who was then the Auburn basketball SID uh, since retired. And we went everywhere together. And we, we went to, sh- uh, you know, the outdoor concerts. And we went to eat. And I remember it was Moose's birthday. And we went into a cigar store. And I bought him a cigar. But we were wandering around and we went into this hotel and, and there was all these visiting uh, dignitaries and stuff. And we look and there's Ralph Sampson hanging out. So we couldn't resist, you know, we, we had to go talk to Ralph. Uh, but it was just cool hanging out with those guys. And then the other thing I remember uh, is the game. And I, I remember a tweet I made when North uh, Kentucky beat North Carolina in the regular season. Anthony Davis blocked a shot uh, to preserve the win. And I tweeted out that I said, AD is going to be the best player Calipari ever coached. And I got destroyed 
on Twitter. Uh, people are calling me an idiot. And have you ever heard of D Rose and this and that? And uh, after every award AD won that year, uh, player of the year, freshman of the year, defensive player of the year, I didn't come back at any of my critics. I just made sure I tweeted out all those awards. <laughs> oh, and, and, and gold medalist on uh, yeah. the only collegiate on the Olympic team. Uh, but I remember that game. And, and that just epitomized what I meant in that tweet. Calipari never has, hasn't sensed, and may never will coach a guy who can have such a major impact on a game and score one basket. In that title game, Davis had 16 boards, six blocks, five assists, three steals, and just two points. So I rest my case. I still think he's the best player Cal ever coached, and he may be the best player Cal ever coaches. Yeah, he was the absolute difference in that championship game against Kansas, and and really in the game before that, they played Louisville in the in the uh, semifinal. So uh, that, that's very cool that you were there for that one. Um, and I think you're probably right about Anthony Davis and Calipari. Uh, it, it's hard to imagine that it's going to take a lot to beat. I mean, that, I mean that that's a you know. He, I think the phrase generational player is overused a little bit, but I I think it applies for for Anthony Davis in in that particular instance where he won everything you could possibly win in in that year in in 2012. So good stuff, Chris. Looking forward to the Final Four, and you and I are going to watch the Final Four together. Uh, That's going to be so awesome. Going to make the long journey up I-24, and uh, we're going to plot down here on the couch and – uh, bring Reed, hang out with Reed and Amy, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna watch the uh, games and uh, looking forward I, to it I this can't weekend. Wait for that, uh, I, I, I if we can't be in New Orleans, uh, New Orleans together, we might as well just be at, at like uh, like Casa, <laughs> yes, Ingram, and and, and just uh, kick it and get some wings and pizza, and I'm looking forward to it. Uh, should we make our fearless predictions or should we just let it lie? You know what. As crazy as this tournament is, whatever I pick is going to be totally wrong. So I, yeah, I, I think I might just let it let it ride. All so. <laughs> right, you're right. All right, he's Chris Dorch. I'm Kevin Ingram. That is the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. Enjoy the Final Four, and we'll talk to you next time.